Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. And it always comes down to the path that you took and how it laid down these strands of thinking, ways of thinking and doing that make you the only one who does what you do. And I, I think it just jumped out at me one day, like, yes, I'm design practitioner. Yes, I've been a strategist for a lot of years. Yes, I've, you know, for a brief time, been an executive at a big company. And all of those things have helped me, you know, advance and, and move my career forward. But the thread that ties them all together, that's deeply rooted, I think, in my DNA is this notion of, I just love change. Like, I don't, I don't think it's a bad thing. I don't see it at ri as risk. I see it as a good thing. And, and bring it, bring it on. Because, you know, once you get this mindset of how to think and behave through change of any kind, your odds of success go up. So I just got a little longer, you know, steeping time to kind of think through and, and perfect that. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well. HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? 
United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and t shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If. Only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Joe, welcome to The Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. It's my pleasure, Srini. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, absolutely. So I found out about uh, your book, The Reinventionist Mindset, by way of your publicist. And given that my own life has been a constant reinvention and the fact that we're in a situation right now that seems to be requiring reinvention, I felt that it was not only timely, but relevant, because I think it's something that you have to do throughout your life. Uh, but before we get into all that, uh, I want to start asking, what did your parents do for work and how did that end up shaping and influencing the choices that you've made with your life and career? Yeah, great, great uh, baseline question. So my dad was um, in retail uh, his whole career, uh, forty-four years with um, with Sears, and uh, and most of that in in Canada, with a short stint in the U.S. And uh, grew up, um, you know, son of a family based in the East Coast in Newfoundland. Um, emigrated to Canada before he was even uh, before. Um, uh, Newfoundland was uh, a part of the country, uh, which is a kind of a strange. So I'm a son of an immigrant, but no one would actually say that, um, given that Newfoundland has been part of uh, the Confederation of Canada for a, a lot of years. But uh, and then my mom was uh, born in Montreal, uh, the daughter of American parents who had emigrated up um, to um, to Montreal first, and then Toronto, Canada, and she was uh, a mother of six, so a homemaker in a in a very large way, and uh, definitely the glue that kept our family together. But uh, learned a lot about 
you know, retail um, moved a lot as part of, uh, you know, life of an executive in retail generally means, at least it did in those days, you're going to be, you know, moving from place to place um, as my family did. And uh, that really shaped actually a lot of uh, my early days. And uh, uh, yeah, uh, that was the beginning. So, you know, I mean, I'm always intrigued by people who come from these massive families. I mean, six siblings is not a normal dynamic at a dinner table for most of us, you know, especially for me who grew up with, you know, one other sibling. Uh, and I'm always curious, like, what did you learn about relationships and social dynamics and human behavior that you applied to your life later from sitting at a dinner table with six other people? Well, diversity of uh, thought is a nice way to say it, but strong opinions would be probably the more accurate. Um you know, six kids, uh, two two parents uh, who were themselves very different. Um, you know, my, my dad tended to be very, very uh, conservative in, in his outlook and, and his ways, very quiet. My mom was the opposite, you know, center of um, uh, the family life, energetic, loved to socialize. Um, and and those two opposites, I think, shaped the culture of, of our broader family. Um but I was the last of six kids. So as I grew up in lots of ways, you know, with four older sisters and an older brother, you know, I had multiple parents. Um, you know, I came came along, there was a 12-year age gap between the oldest and the youngest uh, being me. And, and in a way, I was born, uh, or at least by the time I reached sort of the age where I could have a conversation at a dinner table, I was really amongst adults or young adults anyway. And so the whole nature of my childhood was very different than, say, my oldest siblings who, you know, would have just had that, you know, older parents, young siblings, and everything would be more childlike. Mine was very, very, um, you know, diverse in the conversations. Um, You know, it was a time, I think, right in the heart of me coming of age. uh, My oldest uh, sisters were at university, uh, University of Windsor across the River from Detroit, and this was the late '60s, early '70s. You know, the entire world is experiencing you know massive um, societal shifts, and certainly uh, America, and by extension Canada, was. And so I, I grew up in this kind of dialogue around you know change and and the intensity of, of youth saying, you know, we don't have to accept the way our parents um, you know saw the world and felt that you know, these values are the ones that would be forever upheld. We see it differently. And, you know, I'm just soaking it in as a kid. And when I was, when I was 10, uh, my oldest sisters um, actually said to my parents, hey, if Joe's not doing anything for the summer, why doesn't he come and spend, you know, the summer with us? And so I lived for a f- complete summer with older uh, sisters and their friends in this old mansion in the University of Windsor, just off the campus. And, you know, my daily life was, we'd go to the campus, we'd, you know, listen to people talk, we'd go to a protest in the afternoon, there'd be a rally in the evening. You know, sometimes there was actual uh, altercations, like, you know, police trying to come and shut down, uh, you know, this particular protest or that, or get the students off campus because they're occupying buildings. It was just a crazy summer. And and when I think about that moment, you know, my relationship with change was formed right then. In fact, when I wrote the book, um, you know, I went right back to that moment because someone had asked me, you know, how did you 
think about change, you know, now that you practice it professionally, where did all that begin? And it, it began that summer. Yeah. Well, it's funny. My, my first thought was like, oh, mansion with your older sister's friends. It sounds like heaven for a teenage boy, but obviously not <laughs> taking this conversation. Um, you know, one thing that I wondered, you know, having grown up in Canada, um, how did that shape your worldview on capitalism, business and economics versus somebody who grows up in the United States? Because there's something I think that at least from what I witnessed in the news, and, and I also have grown up in Canada for some time. Like I grew up in Edmonton for four years. I went to elementary school there. Okay. But there's a sense of, um, you know, there's a sense of self-interest that I think we push to the point of diminishing returns in the United States. And I feel like I don't see that in Canadians, at least from the ones that I've talked to. Correct me if I'm wrong. Well, Canada has a, a cultural difference in a in a few ways that I think maybe is not as obvious um, to those who have spent time on both sides of the the border and as as I say i'm I'm sort of partly uh, Canadian and partly American um, given that a good chunk of my family is from the American side Wisconsin and Missouri uh, where my grandparents were born and uh, so having spent a lot of time and particularly in my later life uh, in my business um, uh, lots of time on the ground in the U.S. I did, you know, lengthy stints in New York, Chicago, San Francisco, and what I could say is that there is a collaborative nature within the Canadian psyche that is different than the American, um, you know, singular ideal. Uh, you know, the the hero archetype, the you know jump on my back and I'll take you up the hill. Like we're going to, we're going to get there, but, but, you know, individualism, I think rings louder and more profoundly in America, uh, um, as an ideal that's held up. Um, you know, I think about the hero, John Wayne is the archetype. Um, and, and in Canada, I think there is a sense of heroes, but it's different. It tends to be collective. Like, you know, the, the kind of hockey lore of of the Canadian culture is is fundamentally team based. You know, while yes, there are Wayne Gretzky's and superstars, the the whole instinct is around we can you know overcome, we can face this challenge, we can create. In America, it's a little more that that I will do that, um, and I don't think these are you know these are not absolutes. I've very collaborative American colleagues and very, you know, singularly minded uh, Canadian colleagues. So I, I think sometimes these things fall down, but that would probably be one of the things I'd point to. Well, it's it's funny because, you know, my roommate, one of my roommates said he's, you know, any good society is driven by some level of self-interest. And th I think there's absolutely a truth to that, because if you didn't have self-interest, you wouldn't have people starting companies. You wouldn't have people innovating. You know, you wouldn't have people making art like there has to be some component of that. Uh, yet, I think for us, we push that so far that we ignore the collective in you know favor of the individual. Uh and I think you're right. It, it very much is a cultural thing. What do you What do you think are the pros and cons to that? Well, I can tell you, actually, having voted with my feet, in a sense, um, you know, so much of my work is in America. Why is that? You know, I'm comfortable in that American uh, cultural dynamic, um, and I really admire it. And I, and I think that the boldness, the 
you know, we can create something from nothing or, or, you know, overcome great challenges or see opportunities and capitalize them. There's an entrepreneurial spirit, which I really admire in America. And that is magnetic for me because, you know, I'm a, I'm a lifelong, um, uh, what I now think of as a reinventionist, but, but fundamentally what that is doing is making and remaking and, and seeing new ways of creating and evolving businesses and, and such. And I've very much found a, a spiritual king, kinship with, I think, the American entrepreneurial spirit. Not to say that doesn't exist in Canada, because there, there's many, but there's, there's reasons why it's different here. Um, you know, one of the things I, I like about Canada is that it's a very large um, footprint, you know, geographically with a very low population on a relative basis. And so there's a scrappiness here of, you know, we don't have the perfect conditions, but we'll figure it out somehow. And I think that's very, very valuable. Um, you know, if you just looked at market size or dollars available to spend in any category, you know, America has that in, in, in a hands down way. And so I think in some ways the conditions for success, um, oftentimes are in the favor of, uh, of American businesses, part, you know, no small part scale, but, yeah. but the Canadian businesses tend to, you know, often have the workaround solution or figure out how to do more with less. And I love the combination actually between the two. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the, the funny thing is I wonder what advice did your parents give you about making your way in the world? Because constant reinvention is definitely not any parent's dream come true. I know this as the kid who has constantly basically given my parents a headache because, you know, Indian parents are like, okay, figure out what you want to do with your life, go to school and go do that. Whereas, <laughs> you know, reinventionist, professional reinventionist is literally the opposite of that. Yes. So what did your parents tell you about careers? Because I know that you went to design school first, right? Well, it's interesting. My dad was, um, uh, you know, a, a wannabe architect, and you know, he came from uh, a large family himself, uh, second oldest of thirteen kids. Uh, they were not, um, you know, well off, and really had to, you know, scrape and and uh, be scrappy in order to, you know, keep everybody in good shape. And his father died young, so in in a way, he became a dad. Uh, to a lot of younger siblings, uh, his older brother, uh, you know, jumped a ship one day and took off and and sort of left him with the, the senior male role. Um, and so his wh whole advice was around, you know, live within your means, uh, make plans, but be practical, um, you know, think through, try not to take too much risk. Um, and, and yet, you know, the architecture aspect, he, he wanted to go to school. He actually did study for a few years and then uh, had his own family and family ob obligations, uh, you know, particularly financially started to encroach on, on going further with that. So he ended up, you know, having a great career uh, as a retail executive, but um, he loved the creative process. And I think he caught that bug somewhere in his early days. And I suspect it was as he started to study architecture. And so he was always encouraging me, like, yes, be prudent, but you know, it's it's okay to to you know go after things and and dream about building things. Um, and then for my mom, her dad, her father was like this 
you know, Irish descendant. Uh, his parents had immigrated to America. He was a pretty good sales guy uh, from a young age. And he just started to create a business and, you know, moved it from um, Chicago, uh, eventually took over the, Can- you know, Canada as a region. That's, how, that's why he emigrated up and then eventually bought the company from uh, the American owner and uh, ran both sides of the border for many years until he sold it. And, um, but he was this larger than life, loved to socialize and party. And, and I think what I got from my mom was communication. Like m- my mom in a way had this ability to paint a picture and create an environment and a, and a dynamic that was just so exciting, compelling. I think she got it from her dad. And when you put those things together, you know, build things, be practical and prudent as you think about how you're going to do that, and then be a really good communicator that can bring people along with you so, so that they can imagine a different outcome, that they can be swept up in the possibility and not be afraid of, yes, we're going to be practical, and yes, we're going to think this through, and of course, we're going to, you know, be so clear about how to go to where we want to go step by step, but we also need to paint that picture of where we want to go, and it can be really exciting and really compelling. And when I think about those two strands, I mean, that fundamentally is what I practice today with my clients. You know, it's this sort of balancing of facts and feelings, you know, Mm -hmm. specificity, and 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 thoughtful planning and and relying on data and insights with inspiration and possibility and the ability to tell a narrative that'll move people so that they not only understand but they feel mm-hmm. and and that balancing of facts and feelings if you will is really really fundamental to getting people to a place where they say yes this is possible i know i'm not in a good place i can get to a better place let's now move forward in this way. Yeah. So, you know, what uh, you started in design school, like what is the path that led you to this and and how does this framework develop over the course of your life? Uh, And after that, we'll actually get into what you call the five, um, you know, uh, principles of the reinventionist mindset. Oh, great. Um, Well, if we pick up the trail from, uh, you know, that very defining summer experience when I was 10, you know, one, one trait, that I was teased a lot about when I was a kid was um, I would constantly rearrange things, not only my own room, but pretty much anything I could get my hands on. Like I'd move furniture around from one room to another and, and, you know, redecorate and, and had this kind of knack for the aesthetic aspect, the organizational aspects of things um, that my parents picked up on. And when I was, you know, nearing the end of high school, um, my dad uh, said, you know, you should think about design school and, and uh, let's look at some uh, paths in that realm. And so I ended up um, uh, first enrolling in interior design and then switching to industrial design because I found it, it was much more interesting from a, I can impact things in a design way, but take them to scale versus one-offs. That's what I really saw the difference between, you know, doing interiors and then actually designing you know, products for mass production and, and systems and, and such. Um, I really loved design school because I think what it taught me was 
everything has a beginning and it's only uh, your imagination and you know various sets of considerations that can cause you to think of it differently and therefore refashion it for a different purpose. And I certainly love the aesthetic uh, side of things. Um, and I love the culture of creation. Uh, you know, I've, I found that I was a bit of a misfit in my earlier schooling because I was, you know, looking for what's next and never satisfied with the, the now. I was always thinking about, hey, we could do this and it could be different. And, and I think that was probably exhausting for those around me, my friends and such. But by the time I got to design school, I, I realized, wow, I'm, I'm amongst a group of people that actually, you know, in, in a less political way, as my sisters before me, weren't satisfied with their particular status quo. And in those days, that was more of a political framework. I was dissatisfied with the way things showed up. And I happened to uh, have a professor who had, you know, recently come from uh, Europe, Eastern Europe, and he um, thought that everything in North America was completely tasteless, that design had never arrived here. You know, he looked at everything from environments to, you know, graphic communications in airports to um, appliances on, on tables, uh, at kitchen uh, countertops and saying like, everything here is really, really ugly. There is no, um, uh, you know, thoughtful design in, in practice. And, and, you know, through that, by the end of my first year, I was looking at the world through his lens and, and being incredibly dissatisfied with the way everything was done. Uh, which when I would go back and visit my parents, uh, you know, on weekends or holidays, <laughs> they, would, they would, you know, get a lesson in, uh, you know, why everything in their world was really, um, you know, tasteless and underdesigned. <laughs> <laughs> so you're like a Steve Jobs in the making, basically. Well, I, that would, that's a very flattering thought. I, I wouldn't put myself in that class, but uh, I do know my, my parents were long suffering in, in that phase. Um, but I, what I love was, you know, there isn't anything that cannot be made better in some way. And the, the aha for me was, it isn't an absolute assessment. Yes, of course, on some level, everything can be made better. We just need more time and, you know, the ability to learn from how things are and, and, and doors will open to how do we, you know, create a better ecosystem or a better product design or a better, you know, retail experience or, or what have you? But the impetus is is the context. It's change. You know, if we were in a static environment where things did not change around anything, the chances that they would be evolved and refined and sharpened and made, you know, better, clearer, more beautiful, what have you, would probably be less the case. And and I'm speaking at, at a time when change, you know, came, even though there was sort of dramatic moments, change came infrequently and kind of gently as compared to today, where it just comes so fast and so, so hard that we're all, you know, in this crash course of learning how to stay with it and adapt and not just be like, you know, instead of resistant to it, maybe comfortable with it, maybe embracing it learning how to be good at it. No, you know, scrap that. Let's, let's be great at it. Let's be like pro athlete good at it. That's what we, we all need to do. And I just had, I guess, a path that, that was a little bit, um, 
earlier in in that uh, you know that process of learning what change is and and its true power and how it is contextual, obviously, and how that that um, that seeing things in a moment uh, can open up new possibilities for how they can be better and made stronger and higher performing and so on. You know, I'd just been at it for a lot longer. I didn't realize it until my professional life. Like I didn't sort of say when I was in design school, oh, I'm going to be a reinventionist someday. That just, yeah. that just sort of arrived. And I realized, you know, what, what makes me unique? Um, you know, I, I encourage everybody, uh, you know, your listeners and, and business leaders to ask that question, like truly category of one, what is it that is uniquely you business brand leader, just human that is unique and special. And it always comes down to the path that you took and how it laid down these strands of, of um, thinking, ways of thinking and doing that make you uh, the only one who does what you do. Uh, and and I, I think it just jumped out at me one day, like, yes, I'm design practitioner. Yes, I've been a strategist for a lot of years. Yes, I've, you know, for a brief time, been an executive at a big company. And all of those things have helped me you know, advance and, and move my career forward. But the thread that ties them all together, that's deeply rooted, I think, in my DNA is this notion of, I just love change. Like, I don't, I don't think it's a bad thing. I don't see it as risk. I see it as a good thing. And, and bring it, bring it on. Because, you know, once you get this mindset of how to um, think and behave through change of any kind, your odds of success go up. So I just got a little longer, you know, steeping time uh, to to kind of think through and, and perfect that. So if you like The Unmistakable Creative, there's another podcast that I think you'll really like. So how does an opera singer learn a new role? How does an actress find the perfect accent for her character? What does the director of a TV drama actually do all day? Those are the questions that Ruman Alam, Isaac Butler, and June Thomas put to creative people every week on Working. Learn how writers outline novels, how composers get jobs and get paid, and how YouTube creators learn to look into the camera lens. Listen to Working from Slate every Sunday on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. So this might be a weird question because you probably don't have the, the context and vice versa, but what do you think is different about a design school education than sort of a traditional liberal arts education? Because like when I hear people talk about design school, you know, and I hear stories like yours, I'm like, wow, I think I definitely should have done something like that instead of go to Berkeley. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I don't think there's any you know, path that is better. In fact, I, I think ultimately, no matter what people choose from an education point of view, from a business experience point of view, their true self will emerge. I, I think the odds are very high that that will always be the case. Like I've met lawyers who, you know, end up being, um, you know, incredibly talented creators. I've met, um, actually one of my, you know, call a colleague I've, I've worked with him many times, a guy named Joe Mimran, uh, who created brands like, um, Club Monaco, um, sold that to, uh, Ralph Lauren and, uh, some brands that we've worked on together, uh, Joe Fresh, um, up in, up in Canada and, and for a brief time in the U S um, he's a chartered accountant, uh, public accountant. And so I, I think you'll find your path, no matter which, you know, educational choices you make or, or career choices you make. Um, design education for me is incredibly hands-on. 
like when I think about myself as a reinventionist, that includes notions that we're talking about. Like I like to shape things. I like to shape outcomes. I like to, to build and, and tear down and build again. Those are all very tangible activities. And, and so physicality in design, it really uh, was, was one of the things I loved the most. And, and, and in my design education, I took things like art history and which wasn't, you know, hands-on, uh, yes, I would, you know, take an illustrator's course and, you know, learn how to sketch and, and those aspects of, of learning, um, you know, the, the practice or the craft of, of artistic pursuits. But that's a big thing that stands out for me. And then yeah. functionality, you know, that, that idea that creation, when you think about it in design terms, is art in a way, but almost always has some kind of functional, unpractical dimension to it. And, and I love that. Like, I, you know, I, when I was in design school, I was learning about uh, the Bauhaus school and, you know, form uh, meets function and, and how beauty was something that truly was not only aesthetic, but functional. Um, and there's, a, there's an art, an art to the practical, which I, I've always loved. Yeah. Wow. Um, it, it's funny to hear you talk about just sort of finding a path because, you know, I was an economics major and, you know, recently at the request of, you know, at the recommendation of Naval Ravikant, I was like, and I was a C minus economics student, but I read the wealth of nations and then I overlaid it mm -hmm. over my own business. And I was like, oh, wow, I actually use these principles almost unconsciously mm -hmm. on a daily yeah. basis. Yeah, I, I think we undervalue the education of just just life and absorption. <laughs> you know, yeah. there are things that you probably overheard in a conversation. You know, your parents having, or or even in you know dynamics when you were a teen, or or beyond. And these things leave imprints, and those imprints can be profound. Like not like, hey, I spent four years studying this thing, but. This idea caught my attention. This, this stayed with me, and I started to attach it to other things that seemed important to me. And eventually, this you know, alchemy of, of inputs and influences you know, creates the professional you. And I, what I love that you said, Srini, was that I don't, you know, something along the lines of, I don't think my Indian parents would have said, you know, become a reinventionist, become a constantly changing you know, creature. But that's what we need to do. And, and I love that, you know, I'm talking to somebody that, that feels the same way by what I gather from about your life and career as I do about mine. Like, I, I'm just, you know, I love to perfect things and, and, I'm, and I'm manic about, you know, tweaking and the process that we've defined in my business. This method um, is, is a, a good example but I also love to get on to what's new and next. Mm -hmm. And, yeah. and, you know, if you, and if you can see it and, and it sort of catches your attention, you go, could I, might I, would that be, you know, a way to learn to grow? Yikes. I'm not even qualified to do that. That's how I felt about writing a book was like, you know, it's, you could say, yeah, I'm going to write a book and maybe a publisher will say, sure, we'll take you on. But that's not the same as being able to write a book. And uh, <laughs> right. you know, like, okay, take yeah. a deep breath and like throw your foot as far forward as you can and take a leap. And, and hopefully this is going to work out and be afraid to fall on your face. Yeah. Um, 
you know, the, the, that's just what the world needs more of today. Um, yeah. to, you know, just to stay, I, I don't like that idea of like running hard to stay in one place because I, I don't think that's quite accurate, but yeah. just that freedom that comes from, um, having a little bit of courage and a little, you know, a lot of curiosity and say, you know, how far up is up and how far down is down. What's the worst thing that can happen here? Yeah. You know, I, 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 the Mandela, you know, let's, let's quote big people and big important thinkers. You know, I, I never fail. I either, I either win or I learn. Wow. Yeah. Well, it's, it's funny you say that because like, I, I remember I, I was asked to give the, the keynote speech for podcast movement, this conference for podcasters when it started Excited. in 2014. And I said, I'll do it on one condition. They said, what? I was like, I'm not going to talk about podcasting. They're like, what? You're the keynote speaker for a conference about podcasting and you don't want to talk about podcasts. I was like, <laughs> and, and I told them, I said, look, to me, you know, this was a big thing. And I think it's relevant to what you said. Uh, you know, this constant reinvention. I said, I never want to be labeled by any one thing. Yeah. I've written books. Yeah. I've done the podcast, but I said, at the end of the day, man, I'm a storyteller who uses the internet to make things that's far mm. more expansive. And I think that that's the message I wanted to convey, um, to people. And, and you're right. I like, I don't want to ever, you know, forever be defined by one sort of art form. Uh, but on that note, let's actually get into the principles because I, I think that what I love about uh, you know, books like yours is the fact that you give us this big idea, but you give us a very tactical framework to to actually go out and apply it. And you know, you looked at it entirely through a company, through, through the lens of, of sort of a business. But I'd love to look at it through the lens of both the business and individual because I think that there's plenty of overlap. So let's start at the beginning. You have these five principles: you seek insight everywhere, embrace uncertainty, create the future now, obsess the outcome, and make momentum together. Let's start with this, the idea of seeking insight everywhere, because that to me is mm -hmm. really fascinating. And you give a number of places to look for insight. What are those and why is each one relevant? Mm -hmm. Well, maybe I'll start by saying the reason it's the first principle and it's so important. And, and I wrote these, you know, there was probably a dozen uh, in my earlier notes. I kept noticing in, in the transformation of company after company that there'd be certain, certain dynamics that would be at play that would either slow or halt progress or enable progress and and really up you know the odds of of a of a successful outcome and and then i started you know there were more you know ideas thoughts paragraphs observations eventually distilling them down to eight and then to five and and the the last round was trying to get them down to you know two or three word ideas that everyone could relate to almost to the point that they're so simple as a box set you you can dismiss them because oh yeah well these sort of make sense the reason that they're so powerful you know the as as i referred to them i think they are um you know said humbly the game changers of change itself is because if you if you apply them in the in the way you think and act through change you will find a level of comfort, a level of clarity, a level of uh, possibility that is not normal. The normal state for humans is to resist change. You know, I'm I'm just going to wait it out. I, I don't know what's you know there. I feel threatened. I, I, I'm going to stay with what I know. And as the world goes faster and faster, change comes harder. You know that is the exact opposite reaction um, that's going to continue uh, to put you in a good place. So, so the principles are are 
designed in that way. Seek Insight Everywhere came from seeing company after company be incredibly insular, you know, focused on one competitor or at least like competitors. Every executive would read the same trade magazines, all you know, focused in their industry. They'd go to those conferences. They'd hear other speakers from other competitors talking about their industry and, and on and on and on. And fundamentally, I, I just started to realize, you know, when, uh, let's say, Uber came on the scene, it was incredibly disruptive to the taxicab industry. True. But it was also incredibly disruptive to many other industries, banking and, and ultimately other ones, um, you know, in retail, because it changed the expectation that broadly consumers have on the experience of doing anything you know, the visibility and transparency, the immediacy, all these kinds of things. Well, if I can get a car that easy, why can't I have that when I want to apply for a mortgage? And, and so we, we, we need to force ourselves to look beyond our own categories, look for possibilities. And then more deeply, Seek Insight Everywhere is centered on human nature. You know, I ask a lot of leaders when, when I'm interviewing, um, you know, with them and and for them, they're interviewing me and my team to see if we're a good fit for them. But I'm interviewing them to see if the conditions for success are there and if if we will take the gig. And what I'm asking often uh, with without satisfaction is, what do you know about your customers? And oftentimes you'll find, well, you know, we've got reams of data, we've got lots of research. Most of it tends to be on the where do they spend their money you know what decisions will they tell you that they're making purchase decisions on um or or factors and what i mean by how well do you know your customers is who are they what do they care deeply about what human insights can unlock possibilities for you and your company because ultimately if you are in the functional realm you can be duplicated. You can be knocked off. If you're playing in an emotional realm, I'm, I'm not selling a, you know, a service or a product. I'm selling a benefit, an emotional benefit in the end. This idea has been around a long time. It's just sort of lost favor, I think, that get to what is really driving the humans that you're focused on as your customers, and you can unlock incredible opportunities for you and your business. So there's a whole lot packed into that. But then, you know, basically seek insight everywhere. Listen to what young people care about these days. You know, yeah. pay attention to uh, the things that they, that have caught their attention. To, uh, you know, it's, it's really, really healthy to keep the aperture very wide because the future arrives daily uh, and, and you can see it if you're tuned to it. Uh, it just comes in forms that aren't, aren't necessarily immediately connectable to to what you're doing. Yeah. Well, it's it's funny. So a couple of things come to mind when we say that. You know, I had Robert Green here years ago when he wrote the book Mastery, and he gave me this mm. metaphor which has really shaped how I choose podcast guests. You know, he said the analogy is biodiversity. So the more species you have in an ecosystem, the richer that ecosystem is. And like I realize I have a thousand dots to connect between interviewing bank robbers and drug dealers and people like <laughs> yourself, all of who've had something incredibly useful to teach me. Um and it's really strange because I'm like, oh, if I went back to school now, I would probably do really well just based on the things that I've learned from doing this podcast. But there's one other thing that 
came up for me when we were talking about this idea of insight everywhere. Um, actually, two other things. You know, you mentioned knowing customers, and we, you know, my community manager and I recently took uh, Ramit Sethi's copywriting course, and one of my mentors had seen how our copy was changing. He said, "This course has been a course in empathy for you," and he was spot on. Like, I, I really, it made me see that. Wow, I don't understand what the people who are our newsletter wanted until now i really didn't have a clear understanding and we saw like revenue like literally triple in a month it was kind of insane to watch um but there's one other part of the seek insight everywhere and this is something i've been thinking a lot about particularly in the context of our current media landscape the fact that algorithms feed us everything we consume we say we should seek insight everywhere and, and i want to ask you that but this is because i'm writing a, a new blog post titled How to Build a More Creative Brain. And one of the things that I said is to seek out viewpoints that you know you will disagree with. Mm -hmm. And that is harder and harder to do in a world where everything you consume is driven by algorithms. So, you know, for me, the metaphor is the difference between going to Amazon to search for books and going to the bookstore to browse. When I go to Amazon to search, I'm going to get books <laughs> like yours, self-improvement books, things that I pretty much, you know, are based on my shopping patterns. When I go to the bookstore, I discover things that I would have never thought to pick up in a million mm -hmm. years. So how do we deal with this cognitive bias that is deeply embedded into all of us? Well, I, I think it's a huge point and, and it is punishing businesses that are, you know, like consumers of media, you know, their world is shrinking for, for these same reasons. And and I think one of the great forces uh, at, at work is technology itself. While it's enabling many things, it's also flattening the difference between businesses. Um, you know, so we're in a category of, you know, it's interesting. I was I was uh, talking with Stephanie uh, Meta, the um, editor in chief of Fast Company, the other day, and you know, we were got we got onto this topic that there used to be a time when there was like this subset of businesses called tech companies. And really, when you think about it today, every company is a tech company uh, and in some way. And that actually is creating, um, a, I think, a standardization to some degree. And all the points of difference are being buffed down. And there's some benefits to that, efficiencies and, and such best practices. But there's also a great loss in that you know, we choose... Uh, people and uh, business partners and brands on the basis of how they are different to us and they speak to us. And the more they become interchangeable, you know, the, 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 the more commoditized they become. And, and it's this kind of downward cycle. So getting back to your point, you know, how do you, you, how do you deal with that reality actively resist? You know, one of the things I love about um, travel uh, is is that it does open your mind to different possibilities. I remember um, my wife and I uh, flew to this wonderful place in Dominican Republic, and um, you know, so incredible an environment and and a luxury experience. It was fantastic. Friends had, had invited us down, and. Um, and I'd been doing a little bit of work with um, a, an organization that was helping to create an economy, a more of an artisan economy in Haiti. And if you know the island of Dominican Republic and, and Haiti, it's bisected, two different countries. And, you know, I, I said to uh, Kat, what do you think if we hopped a flight from the local airport closest to us and went over to Port-au-Prince? And, you know, she said, I think that'd be amazing. Like, 
you know, talk about a contrast with the experience we're having here and we'll learn a lot. And so we went there and we spent uh, about 48 hours in Port-au-Prince. I won't get into all sort of the details of what we learned, but but there was an opportunity. We could have gone to uh, Caso de Campo is the name of this 700 acre beautiful place and just stayed there and sort of that was our frame. But by going to a place that is like the opposite end of that spectrum, like it was such an eye opener and talking with folks there and learning about the realities on the ground you know, earthquakes before and half the place had never been rebuilt because they just don't economically have the wherewithal to do. So I use that as an example where, you know, actively resist the 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 insulation that's building around you. And, you know, I've got books in my library and, you know, friends have given me this or that. And every once in a while I'll go through and I, I listen, I love many authors and I reread um, some but go and pick the book up, you know, when bookstores are back online, I think they are now, but go, go and find things and talk to people yeah. you wouldn't otherwise. And, and also in the professional context, you know, bring in voices that are not normal in the context. You know, we don't do that even as much as I'd like to, where what is, um, you know, we're, we're doing much more anthropological work these days and trying to understand true human behavior. But mm-hmm. Um, you know, get other perspectives and, and have, you know, here's a fundamental thing, just, you know, have a diversity of friends, young, old, you know, one of my good friends, it's kind of a late blooming relationship. She's in her eighties. And, uh, and I learned so much, you know, I don't see her all the time, but have a coffee with her or a telephone call. And, you know, just like having a real conversation with a (laughs) six-year-old. Yeah. I, I love this. I mean, it, it's, you know, you're, you're speaking my language. It, it also makes me realize, like, you know, I remember when I got called in to come to Citibank's, you know, global marketing team. I was like, what the hell does a global marketing team at Citibank want with somebody like me? But now it makes sense as to why oh, they would do that. Yeah. Um, well, let's talk about principle number two, which is to embrace uncertainty. I think our very nature is that we're incredibly resistant to uncertainty. Like it's so resistant that we sit down and we plan our days to make sure they don't get derailed. But life is inevitably uncertain. And, you know, like I'm saying, this is a person whose entire life has gone not according to plan. Um, How do you develop a tolerance for uncertainty? Because I think that in my mind, tolerance for risk and uncertainty are essential components of progress. Like there is no progress without them. And yet they're two things that we do everything we can to mitigate them. Yes. Well, it's funny. I I think, uh, you know, tying it back to your comment about your parents, you know, business is the same way. Like what, what, what do many value more, um, more than the unexpected reliability, predictability? Uh, you know, there, there's, I think it's fundamentally a human need for safety. Um, you know, the unknown is a scary place. Uh, at least, you know, well, where I am right now may not be perfect. At least I know it. Um, and I can manage within it. Um, but I, I'm on a on a mission, literally, to change, to reposition change itself in people's minds. I think there's some fundamental things I've 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 thought long and hard about. Um, you know, yes, change is hard. Irrelevance is harder. Uh, except that every strategy will fail, um, and. And there's this kind of obstinate belief that, no, we've got this right. And a lot of times it comes from being successful for a long time. I worked with many companies, you know, north of 50 years old. Some of them, you know, Walgreens over 100 years 
old and and it's like look we are who we are we've been doing this successfully for a lot of years like we why why would we need to change every strategy will fail and you don't want to have it done to you you want to be ahead of it and i i think that's very it must be very real for leaders today when they see you know market share shifting to disruptors in in this crazy fast way you know imagine you're an executive at Gillette and you're looking at your competitive landscape and 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 in a scan somebody says oh there's this thing called you know Harry's or dollar shave yeah whatever uh, it's a rounding error on our business you know look at how big we are look at how much share we have that is fundamentally I don't know the leaders at, at Gillette but I, I I mean it's case history to, to watch what happened they either said it doesn't matter or it's not going to be economic or if we did something like that we would disenfranchise all of our investments and undermine our own position well guess what if you don't do it to yourself someone's going to do it to you and you know massive amounts of market share like hundreds of millions of dollars of sales shifted into those upstarts until it got to a point where you know one of those big players Schick, had to say look you know better bought than fought let's Let's get the darn thing. I, I spent time uh, years ago with the, the um, then CEO of um, of Blockbuster, and he, you know he quietly admitted that they could have bought uh, Netflix, but yeah. they just said so many <laughs> things. You know, it was it was actually not a big number <laughs> that they were looking for, but so many things would have to go right. And and really, if this ever took off, it would disenfranchise our entire model. Exactly. You know, I think about Kodak, if they had only, you know, they talked about we're in the, you know, memories business, helping to capture people's magic, you know, memories. Beautiful. Unfortunately, it was all, it was all um, uh, marketing because yeah. what they saw inside was we're a chemical company. And, you know, when chemical processing, you know, it, it came to its end, they didn't become you know, the iPhone with its wonderful camera, they didn't become Instagram with its wonderful image capture and sharing. Like it, it's really fundamental that people sort of get out of their aversion to risk and get on to, if I'm like, I think about it personally, <laughs> if anybody's going to create the next best version of me and what I do, it damn well better be me. <laughs> <laughs> Have a catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. 
PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community. And that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this, you're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with tap to pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Well, it, you know, I um, I had Julian Smith here as a guest who at the time, Julian is, is also one of these people who seems to be in a perpetual state of reinvention. He built one of the most popular blogs on the internet, but he said something to me that has always stayed with me when I think about, you know, the idea of uncertainty as, as well as, you know, creating the future, which is sort of your next principle. He said, anytime you look at new technology, the question you have to ask yourself is, what does this make possible that wasn't before? And he gave this really simple example of the intersection of the iPhone location tracking and electronic locks. And he said, mm. you have the convergence of those three things. And that makes billions of dollars in businesses possible that weren't before. So, you know, he's the CEO of Breather, which is um, a sort of like Airbnb for temporary office space where you can unlock spaces in cities to go and do your work. Mm. And you see, and it's funny because, you know, we're talking about this idea of creating the future and I want to kind of hear your take on creating the future. But I remember giving a talk to a group of business school students where I said, you know, you see these paradigm shifts occur every five years when you have the convergence of multiple technologies. You know, like I remember to early 2004, you know, we got sort of the next wave of the dot-com boom. But by the time you got to sort of a little bit after that, between the ability to have desktop publishing, Amazon web services, and all the other things that are just normal today, what used to cost hundreds of thousands of dollars and mm. your, even millions of dollars in funding can be built by a kid in a garage. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, it's different. So yeah. yeah, yeah, it's different circumstances um, and it takes a different mindset. I mean, create, create the Future Now actually is a page out of the tech uh, industry where, you know, it, it it's based on the notion of balancing um, getting it right or getting it perfect with getting on with it. 
And, you know, fundamentally, it's get it out of your head, get it out of the lab, get it into the market. Yes, it will be imperfect. Let's accept that. Let's, you know, I think the best companies are the ones that are transparent with their customers um, and say, you know, it, it isn't uh, where we want it to be. We actually need your feedback to get it there. And, um, you know, let's evolve, you know, whether that's F45 releasing their app, uh, you know, the Australian fitness company um, releasing their app as essentially a beta and saying, well, we're in the middle of COVID-19 and this is all about helping people exercise from their own home. So let's just throw it out there and, and ask people what they think and how to make it better. I love that because unfortunately, companies and particularly those with a lot to lose publicly traded, you know, where quarter by quarter, they're trying to hold up, you know, the narrative that we've got this, we know where we're going, we're, we're producing re results, and they keep, you know, getting better in a progression. Strategy, rethinking, you know, transformation, reinvention, whatever you want to call it, causes executives to want to be right, to be certain. And therefore, lots of, you know, analysis, lots of tinkering let's sort of make sure it's perfect before we release before we bet the business on it and i don't like big bets just like executives don't i like small bets in sequence that you you know some fail you learn from some you say wow that one actually really works let's take that to scale as fast as we can and keep making it stronger and better and so you know the, a, a strategic overhaul sounds like something that should take place every five years. Well, no, it's it needs to take place more frequently. And it doesn't have to mean we're going to place massive bet the farm kind of bets on what we think is the perfect solution. The way to get to the perfect solution is to make a series of small bets and just keep going, create the future now yeah. and let that guide you. The other thing is what I learned is, you know, I used to think about um, call it test and learns, like, you know, iterative, let's get that into the market. Let's see what happens. Okay. That's working. Let's tweak that. Let's start to scale this and that as a way to kind of test the, and build confidence around spending, you know, bigger dollars. And it does that has that wonderful benefit, but what it does as well is it, it, it gives you insights. It's a means of gathering insights you couldn't otherwise get. And uh, and th through that, you can open up possibilities. How many times I was thinking of a, a reinvention um, that we worked on uh, in the States um, not that long ago, a couple of years ago. And um, you know, we had it in our head that there's this really cool way to engage with customers. And there was a couple of ways to put that in the market and test it, really scrappy, capital light. And we didn't get back anything in regard to what we were seeking. We got something totally unexpected and so much better. And it unlocked a way of thinking about who we are to our customers. What's that worth? You know, I couldn't have gotten that through conventional research means, quant, qual, anthropological, whatever. I could only get it by doing and then having that seek insight everywhere, that first principle of just, you know, you're listening, you're watching for the faint signals, and you're prepared to be surprised. And like, wow, that's cool. Um, no. So that, that's a really that's a really important one, and it also puts you in motion, you know, uh, which sort of leads to the 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 last principle. But uh, there's a fourth one. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about that one in particular. 
um, before we get to the momentum one. So obsessing over outcomes, it's funny because in creative work, there's this strong understanding among people, and maybe it's framed differently the way you frame it, that you know you want to focus on the process um, and be detached from the outcome because you know, just having written a book, you would know this firsthand, right? There's no guarantee. Like if you went into this thinking this is going to be a, a disappointment unless it becomes a New York Times bestseller, sells a million copies, you're setting yourself up for failure. Um, yet you actually clearly say obsessing over the outcome. So I want to understand that, that you know, what you mean by that. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I learned strategy uh, in a very practical way that, you know, said, differently than you might find in a classroom or a textbook. To me, strategy is simply uh, the highest level how. I'm here, I want to go there, this better place, this higher performing place, this place where you know I'm seen as you know incredibly differentiated and 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 um, you know valued and I have momentum, whatever the dimensions of that place that you want to get to from where you are. And strategy is simply the high level how if you're going to go from you know where you are to where you want to be. Only one wrinkle. You need to know where you want to go. And, and that part in, in the professional st- strategy work that I've been part of, you know, either as a collaborator, you know, running a branding you know, firm in, in prior chapters of my life, or or at the table as an executive, you know, co-owning a PL and and top to you know help shape a strategy. Lots of decision making around um, the how, not too much on the where do we want to get to and why. And and I feel like if you can define an outcome that is every bit compelling from you know a financial point of view but also from a human point of view, like this is going to be an exciting place that we're going to get to. Um, then you can shape strategy to go there. If you haven't defined that end state to some degree and made it tangible, you know, which brings me to the point around strategy is, um, you know, yes, define an outcome, but do strategy in a way that paints a picture of that outcome that isn't dry as toast that, that, you know, people go, Oh, I guess that's our strategy. You know, yawn. I hope this meeting ends soon. I think you have to, you know, I, I think you have to describe it in a way that that people say, "Wow, that is an exciting place to go." Like, you know, rewarding in terms of financial, but you know, exciting from more of a human level. Like, I want to be part of that picture, mm-hmm. um, and and that way, you know, strategy isn't just understood; it's felt, and that that you know, profoundly is human. You know, we'll we'll go through walls and climb you know, unclimbable mountains, if we want to get to the place that we can picture in our minds and feel on some deeper level, um, you know, I, I often say to to probably wry smiles in, in boardrooms, you know, we want the po- most powerful force on our side. And that's the force of human nature. That's the, that's the force of when people believe and they, they feel things are important and meaningful to them. They will make things happen uh, that that seem uh, impossible. You know, the, I always love that you know, man on the moon uh, thing. You know, ask the janitor. It's probably legend or lore. Uh, you know, uh, the janitor at uh, Cape Canaveral gets asked, like, "Well, what do you do here?" And the answer technically is, "Well, uh, you know, I'm the janitor. I you know sweep the floors and keep the place clean." But 
you know, his answer was, well, I'm part of the team that put a, put a man on the moon. Mm-hmm. And you can see like how emotionally rich that is to him in that answer. You know, a lot of people say, you know, strategy came out of military, right? And it's very much a rational exercise weighing, you know, choices against each other and odds and so on. And, and it stayed that way in the business world, you know, very, very um, rationally centric numbers, you know, driven, empirical. And, and I say to, to think that the military, you know, is unemotional is to miss the plot. Like, why do people not run when, you know, there's a, an onslaught of, of attack, you know, are they trying to hold their ground and intellectually execute a strategy that someone laid down? Yeah, probably. They're, I'm sure they're they're thinking that, but they're also probably going. I'm fighting this battle to protect, you know, my freedom, to to protect, to hold up ideals. You know, the country I'm from. Like these emotionally rich uh, pieces sometimes aren't deeply understood, and and in most cases are not deeply understood in the business world. So I think obsessing the outcome is, you know, commit to where you want to go create an unbelievably compelling picture of it and then get everybody excited about going there and thoughtfully, you know, creating the path. Nothing more powerful than a community that wants to go somewhere. Yeah. So speaking of uh, going somewhere, making momentum together, I think there's one part of this that really kind of stood out to me. You talk about consulting widely, but there's also, and I'm guessing that for you, this is very different, but one of the the things that you hear often is consensus and committee is often where you know innovation pretty much dies. Um, like you have to give people the power to also do that because I, I've seen this. I've seen people. I've done it myself where their creative work is almost determined entirely by external validation and external opinion, and often as a result, they rob something. They rob themselves and the world of something that would be in the work otherwise. If you know, if it weren't for that. So, how do you resolve those two paradoxes? So, you know, fundamentally, great change requires, um, you know, I think the archetype of leader and hero can often figure in the picture. Um, you know, somebody that holds the tablet up high and, and says, okay, here's where we're going and, and follow me. Um, but what you can't miss is that great change requires uh, a great embrace by many to get behind it and make momentum together is the fifth principle because it's the most important. It holds, you know, the place of in everything you do, you, you need to have followers. You need to have people that buy in that, you know, there's a a truth in human nature, which is we tend to support that, which we help create. So bring people into the creative process in some way. I'm not talking about, you know, slowing things down and making everything democratic and cumbersome. I mean, have, ways to interact with people that aren't designed to sell them something, but are designed to bring them into the thinking and the, and the picture, the outcome that's possible. Um, and, and by doing so create this, this unbelievably advantageous force called momentum. And this might sound a little geeky, but uh, you know, if you think about what, momentum is it's you know it's mass times velocity the you know the, the degree to which something has massed or has weight to it uh, t- uh times the speed that it's moving you know creates momentum and you know 
in your business life, I'm sure that, you know, living in a business or any organization that has momentum, it's just so advantage versus one that is, is, you know, static. And, and so, you know, think about it in terms of people. If I can get a group of people to buy in, if I can put a number of things in motion that show progress to where we're going and they keep building and building the mass and that just gets bigger and bigger like a snowball rolling down a hill. And if I can get that to move faster and faster, you know, mass times velocity equals momentum, then the chances that I can become unstoppable go up. So this isn't by chance, you know, this is by design that the way we engage with people from, you know, I've had so many CEOs over the years say, why do you want the entire leadership team in your process? You know, surely the chief legal counsel and the, you know, maybe the IT person today needs to be in those conversations, but why would, you know, HR be in that? Well, because if we don't do it together, if we don't all get onto the same way forward and know why we made certain decisions and and had that sort of that exercise of co-creation that leads to buy-in then we will never be able to in turn bring others in in a uniform you know way uh, and get them on board and have it you know roll out in that way you know most strategies fail because leadership teams are misaligned they, you know, they come untethered from one another. They see the way forward differently. So, so what I, you know, practice and, and to some extent preach is that if you want to make change and you want it to happen fast, then do it together. Do it together at all levels. And in fact, interlevels, bring people into the process. Let everyone in a room whether it's the executive boardroom or whether it's a room, uh, you know, a Zoom call. I, I remember, you know, on a stage with uh, in Chicago, Illinois, and 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 me and the executive team of Walgreens and two hundred twenty-five thousand people on webcast, you know, are are talking about where we're going as a brand. And I can tell you, everyone in that in that process felt that it was their strategy. Nothing was being done to them. They weren't, they weren't being told this is where it, it, it felt very organic and that was by design. And that is so powerful. Um, you know, that business went from uh, weak performance and a price stock price in the teens to, you know, record high stock prices and that enabled the merger with Allianz boots. Um, and it came from people just saying, you know, we see the outcome, we've been consulted, we're, we're part of it and, you know, we're going to make momentum together. And everybody leaned in and wow, can you ever get a business to fire even before big showy, you know, changes start to show up in the marketplace. It just starts to get better because people will it to get better. Yeah. It's, it's funny. One of my old mentors used to describe what he called momentum windows, where he said, you know, basically you get into these windows and he said, every business, every creator, every person enters these in their life. And he said, when you enter one, if you play your cards right, you'll make a quantum leap to where you'll never be back down at the same level again. And he said, the example he gave was like, you know, when Facebook reaches 100,000 users, they're never going to be smaller than that. Mm. Um, And that always stayed with me when it came to momentum. So it's, you know, that's why I'm like, okay, even if I'm not working on a book, I'm always writing because I Mm -hmm. never want to lose that momentum. Great. That's a really good thought. 
Yeah. Well, let's wrap this up with uh, the four pillars of reinvention. Then I have one other question. You talk about mixed method mindset and a model. Can you give us sort of a brief overview of that? Yeah, mix is really just, you know, as you go through a process of reinvention or if you want to call it something else, transformation, or just simply, you know, substantial optimization of your business or your brand or whatever organization or yourself, you know, think about diversity of thought. Think about the mix of, of inputs um, around you. The, the, you know, that idea of seek insight everywhere just gets a lot richer and deeper if you have um, a, a wider aperture. And, and that comes from just having different voices um, at the table. The method uh, that, that we built was, you know, founded on a couple of principles. One was, you know, there is a step-by-step way to go through this. Um, it's not dramatically different than other strategy exercises, except it's very, very human-centric. Um, you know, which customers are we focused on and why? And the why is really what do they deeply care about that leads us to who can we be to them, not how can we serve them, that'll come later, or what can we sell them? But truly, who can we be to them? What And that's where, you know, it opens up the conversations around purpose and so on. Um, you know, balance facts and feelings. Uh, the, you know, the future isn't created on, um, on the evidence and the extrapolation of evidence. It's created on seeing patterns and possibilities and using, you know, instinct and just pure kind of creative interpretation. And, you know, move through the questions and answers. And I do outline this at the tail of the book. Um, you know, there is a method, but it counts on not only rational thought, it, it counts on intuitive and, and instinctive instinctive um, reactions. So that's, um, you know, method. Um, the, the mindset we've talked about at length, it's the five principles. It's how to think and behave through change. Um, and if you apply those as you kind of work through the method, it's kind of the yin and yang of, of successful transformation. You know, how you do it and how you think about and behave through it. And then uh, lastly, the model, and this is just something I happened to uh, come across when I became an executive at, as a big, at a big company for about two and a half years. And prior to that, I was a consultant, like a fee-for-service, you know, hire me and my team and we'll come in and help you figure stuff out. And the model was um, changed in my mind when I went to work. Um, I'm an executive vice president of marketing, CMO of a very large publicly traded retailer, and uh, you know, as part of my comp, in addition to salary, I, you know, stock options and RSUs and essentially skin in the game uh, for value creation. And when I came back to the consulting life, I, I thought I'm never going to work on any business where I, I put a lot of energy and creativity and passion into figuring this out with them. And then I, the only thing I walk away with is whatever I was able to, you know, negotiate in fees. What by putting a, a, a stake in the outcome, it enabled me to obsess it with them to a greater degree. And therefore the odds went up that we would achieve it together. Um, so that's what model means. And today um, with very few exceptions, uh, we have some kind of stake in the outcome of, of all the work that we do with you know, it's probably approaching 50 companies now in the 12 years we've been doing this. Wow. So I have two final questions for you. Um, you know, having read the book and, and seeing the just sheer size of the transactions you've been involved with, I imagine at this point you've amassed what 
most people would consider a significant amount of material wealth. And what I wonder is how your personal definition of success has changed with age. Ah, that's a great question. You ask good questions, by the way. Um, there's a reason you've earned your reputation. Um, so, yeah, I, you know, it's funny. I, I don't, I'm not chasing material wealth. Of course, it's, you know, it'd be disingenuous to say it, it doesn't matter. You know, it affords you luxuries like travel, which, which I really highly value. Um, but what I'm chasing is that strategy and all of its moving pieces and parts are done differently, that there is a better, more human way to, to help companies continually be the better, more powerful and relevant version of themselves and, and actually individuals on that as well. And that, like, I, you know, I'm old enough now to, to be able to sort of look back and there was some things that I was chasing. It might've been, you know, accomplishments or the opportunity to work on this scale of business or what have you. But today I, I think if I could contribute to the way strategy is shaped and brought to life, that is right for today, uh, for different times than when it was born in the business world, you know, back in the days of James McKinsey, then that would make me feel very happy. And at least in a professional sense, a life well lived. Um, that's, that really drives me. Amazing. So I have one final question for you, which is how we finish all of our interviews, the unmistakable creative. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? Hmm. It's, you know, it's that DNA strand that, that I think in lots of ways gets more visible as you get on in years that, you know, defines the true you. I, I, and, and sadly, I think many people see it and know it. They just resist it. They've been conditioned to, you know, chase something else or whatever. It's, it's what makes people unique. And, and, you know, in my sort of business world language, become a category of one where you're not interchangeable. You're truly the only one who does what you do is, uh, the ability to see it, recognize it, and embrace it, and to do something with it. And some people don't see it ever. Some people see it and resist it. And then those who I think who end up being most fulfilled and can make the greatest contributions to you know the world are the ones who fearlessly say it it. Uh, it is, it defines me and I have to, I have to follow that. I have to go with that. I have to use that force, that power. Um, and if anyone is listening and they say, yeah, well, that there isn't anything in my particular makeup or that would be, you know, what Joe is describing, I'd say that does, that's not true. That's, there is something and it will reveal itself, but it helps if you spend a little time trying to find it. And when you do find it, you know, believe it and, 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 and think about how you can use it to your advantage. Hmm. Amazing. Um, well, this has been really, really, really insightful. I feel like you packed so much into an hour that I'm going to have to go back and listen to it a dozen times. <laughs> um, where can people find out more about you, your work and everything else you're up to? Yeah. Uh, well, my, uh, website as an author, uh, first time author and, and as a speaker is joejackman.com. And uh, 
And then uh, my company is Jackman Reinvents, uh, also.com. And uh, you can sort of see the two dimensions of, you know, my, my, um, my life uh, on those two. Amazing. Uh, and for everybody listening, we will wrap the show with that. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Unmistakable Creative Podcast. While you were listening, were there any moments you found fascinating, inspiring, instructive, maybe even heartwarming? Can you think of anyone, a friend or a family member who would appreciate this moment? If so, take a second and share today's episode with that one person, because good ideas and messages are meant to be shared. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch, the skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.